Such a great video and a reminder to us as a church, uh, Twilliger Community Preschool is a part of our church ministries. And so um, maybe you don't know um, little ones or aren't grandparents or have kids in that age group. Uh, we, we would love for you to be praying for our preschool ministry as it kicks off the registration. Um, and maybe you have friends who have kids in that age group. Please consider uh, telling them about um, Twilliger Community Preschool and invite them to join in that. Uh, my daughter is attending there right now. My, um, my other daughter will be starting next year and we're just so excited they love being there they have a great time it's an amazing program that they're putting on there well this morning uh, we continue in our series in the gospel of john looking at jesus's last words i invite you if you have a bible with you uh, to please open up to john chapter 15 that'll be our text for this morning and um yeah, we'll jump into that. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. There's Bibles at the usher statement, at ushers stations. Uh, you can grab one of those. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, you can feel free to keep that as well as our gift to you. Well, I am a young dad. And over these past uh, few months, I've been having this experience where I'm saying something to my kids. And the words coming out of my mouth sound an awful lot like the words that my parents said to me when I was a little kid. How many of you parents have had this experience? You're like echoing your parents' words to your kids. So it's like we're at the store and my daughter's like seeing all this stuff at the store and she wants everything it seems. And I turn to her and I say, money doesn't grow on trees, you know, right? I'm like, oh, my parents said that to me. Or we're in the car driving home from the store and my girls in the back are just like bickering and they're all over each other and I'm driving and I'm like, don't make me pull this car over, right? How many of you said that one? My dad would say that one. Or at the dinner table and my little girls just will not eat their food. And I'm like, come on, eat your food. And then I say something to the effect of, you know, there are hungry, starving people in the world who would gladly have your supper, right? <laughs> How many of you said that one? Yeah, yeah. And then there's another one that's been coming out of my mouth when my daughter, Libby, she's like, she just wants to know what's going on. Dad, what's happening? What's the plan? What are we doing today? What are we doing tomorrow? Who's coming over? Whose house are we going to? And she's really concerned that I don't have her happiness or her best interests in mind. And she just wants to know. She wants all the information so that she can be at peace, that she can rest, that she can know that she can be happy. And the phrase that comes out of my mouth that was said to me a lot growing up was, is this. The adults in your life have everything under control, right? The adults in your life have everything under control, which is a really polite way of saying, stop talking to me. <laughs> you know, just, just leave it alone. Stop thinking about it. But I was thinking about that phrase, the adults in your life have everything under control. And it dawns on me that this phrase actually really connects to John chapter 15. Because when I think of my little daughter Libby and this desire that she has to know what's going to happen, this desire that she has to know that everything is going to be okay. This desire that she has to know that she is going to be happy. When I think about those desires, I can't help but relate deeply to them. I too want to know that everything will be okay. I too want to know that things are going to work out. I too want to know what's going to happen. I too want to be happy. What's shifted though is rather than saying the adults in my life have everything under control... It's now become this idea that I need to have everything under control. I need to figure everything out. And so I go through my life desperately trying to control my circumstances. I go through my life desperately trying to make sure that I'm going to be okay, that I am going to be happy. Can you relate to this? 
We live in a culture in a day and age where uh, we are taught implicitly or explicitly by culture that if we just work hard enough, if we just put in enough effort, if we just create the right technology, if we just are creative enough, if we just figure out step one, two, three, four, and five, then we will be able to stand above our circumstances, we will be able to control our outcomes, and we will be able to secure our happiness. This is the message that comes through us through marketing and advertising, television shows, that if we can just get enough control, if we can just have enough of a grip on our situation, our circumstances, then we can make sure that we will always be taken care of, that our happiness will be assured, that we will be wanting for nothing. However, this doesn't seem to be how the world works. Even as we develop new technology, it only reveals to us all the other problems that we have in our lives. And even if, as an individual, you can secure a good, a good situation in your own life where you have food in your fridge and money in the bank account, even if you can figure that out, you can't control our government, you can't control the economy and the uncertainty that, that surrounds that, One morning you might wake up not feeling well and a week or a month later you find yourself with a diagnosis of something you can't control. Your very health is out of your control, out of your hands. We are not in control. But the message that we are given is that we need to trust ourselves. We need to control our circumstances if we are to secure peace or happiness. And so we try, I try, we live a hurried life, we work harder, we do more, we trust in ourselves, we work to secure our own future and forge our own path. And frankly, this is exhausting. And our culture is exhausted. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you are tired? How many of you work in workplaces where everyone is tired? Desperately trying to experience the good life. And it's just not working out quite the way they want to. So I grow up and I realize that this phrase, the grown-ups in my life have everything under control. That maybe it wasn't totally true, right? My parents probably didn't have everything under control. But the shift should not be to, I should have everything under control. Instead, the shift should be to my Father in heaven has everything under control. Friends, I believe that's what Scripture teaches us. That we can rest in the reality that our Father in heaven has everything under control. But how do we do that? What does it look like to do that? Well, I believe our text speaks to that reality this morning. And this is what it says. I'm going to read for us from John chapter 15. I am the true vine... My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody laid down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father, of the Father in my name, he will give to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." Friends, Jesus invites his disciples, I believe he invites us, to trust him to accomplish the outcomes that they most deeply long for as they abide in him. So these questions, this uncertainty, this rising up in us, will I be okay? Will I be happy? Will things work out? Jesus says, your father in heaven has everything under control. Trust him to accomplish the outcome that you most deeply long for and abide in me. Jesus' comment here at the beginning of John 15 opens up a metaphor that he goes on to expound and unpack uh, verse after verse. So I'm going to do that for us this morning and hopefully help us to uh, answer this question of what does it look like for us to abide. The passage begins with a statement of Jesus saying that he is the true vine. We need to pay attention to this word true because it implies that there's other vines. There's other, other vines that the disciples might have been thinking of that Jesus is contrasting himself to. And in the Old Testament, when a vine is referred to, it was often referring to the nation of Israel. And we have in Psalm chapter 80, uh, we have this, this passage about this. It's not loading for some reason. Where it says, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. It's the mighty cedars with its branches. The branches reached as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. So what's this image? It's the image of a thriving vine. A vine has been planted in the ground. It has grown up. It is majestic. It is beautiful. The vine in Israel was a picture of peace and prosperity. Grapevines in and of themselves, when they're left to their own devices, they don't do very well. But when they are farmed and and taken care of properly, they thrive. Israel believed themselves to be the vine of the Lord. Now, as this psalm goes on, we keep reading, Why have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. The psalmist is reflecting on the fall of Israel. The fact that Israel has been exiled from their land and the peace and the prosperity that they once enjoyed has been lost. And they're saying, God, what's up? Why is the peace and the prosperity gone? 
And so you have Israel, especially at the time of the disciples, longing for the restoration of peace and prosperity. Do you hear the question? Will I be happy? Will I be okay? Will things work out? The vine is this picture of flourishing, this picture of abundance, this picture of life to the full, this picture of the good life. And what does Jesus say? I am the true vine. Not Israel. The life that the disciples were longing for could only be found in Jesus. The disciples believed that the life they were longing for would be experienced in a liberated Israel. If the Romans would get kicked out, if their land could be restored to them, then the vine will prosper, then peace will come. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The life that you're longing for can only be found in me. Not in a liberated Israel, not in the change of your circumstances, but in me, the true vine. I am the source of life. I am the source of peace. I am the source of prosperity. That's what Jesus is saying when he says that he is the vine. And this is consistent with uh, the gospel of John. Right in John chapter 1 verse 4, John points out that in Jesus was life. Jesus' statement about himself in John chapter 10, verse 10, was that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come. Jesus has come. Why? That you might have life and have it abundantly. Peace, prosperity. So how do we realize this life that Jesus has for us? We abide. John 15, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. Jesus here saying, stay with me. Rest in me. We need to abide with Jesus and in his love. The interesting thing about this moment in, our, in the narrative is that at this point, the disciples have been hearing Jesus say that he's going away. I'm about to leave you. But in that same context, he's saying to them, abide with me, stay with me, remain in me. This word abide in the Greek is meno, and you could translate it reside or stay or make your home. And I think this is so interesting is just imagine for the disciples, Jesus goes away. What's their temptation? I think it's one of two things. Either they completely abandon all that was happening. They abandoned the call. They abandoned faithfulness to Jesus and they just go back to fishing. That's one option. Or the other option is that they could have worked in all their own effort to advance the ministry that Jesus was already doing. In our own Christian discipleship, we can often talk about sometimes we fall behind Jesus, where we kind of ignore him, we leave him, we take our eyes off of him. Or we talk about running ahead of Jesus, where we're trying to do all this work in his name, but not with him. And I think the disciples faced that option, and Jesus said, can I give you a third option? Stay with me. When you're tempted to fall behind, when you're tempted to run ahead, stay with me. Abide with me. Make your home with me. The word abide is used 12 times in this passage. Stay with me. Abide with me. And as we abide, Jesus instructs us to a few things. The first is that as we abide, we're instructed to pray. In verse 7, we read, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I love this passage, this invitation for us, that as we are with Jesus, something happens in us. 
We become friends of God, Jesus says in verse 14. And as friends of God, knowing his plan, we can ask according to his heart, to his will, his desire. We learn to address the Father in the name of the Son. And we do the work of prayer. When we are abided, we bring all of our concerns, all of our questions, all of our longing. We bring it to Jesus. That's what he calls us to do. But he also says, as we abide, we need to be obedient. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and have abided in his love. As we abide with him, we're obedient to what he's taught. And we're fortunate to have the word of God, which highlights for us the, the teachings of Jesus. Things like the Sermon on the Mount. His, the ways as well that where he confronts religious leaders. In all of it, we learn about how we're to live the life that God has called us to. He teaches us his way. And here Jesus is saying, as you abide in me, be obedient to what I have called you to do. Be faithful to me. Keep living out my teaching. This is not always easy. But you see how Jesus gives it the context of love? That as we know his love, as we trust in his love, we can be obedient to his teaching. Which leads to the third command. As we abide, we are instructed to love. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And how did Jesus love them? Through self-sacrificial service. Loving in a way that goes against a person's instinct. Loving in a way that goes against our own flesh and our own desire. Loving in such a way that it costs us something. It causes us to give up our rights. So this is what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to abide, remain with him. And as we do, we're to pray to be obedient to his word, and we're to love others. Now, this is really interesting because when we think about the things he's calling us to do, none of these actions are about producing something. None of them. Jesus isn't calling us to go and and plant churches in this passage. He's not telling us to, to go out into the streets and do this, that, and the other thing. The practice of abiding is not a practice where we leave with a whole bunch of stuff being produced. That's being, oh, look at all the stuff that I did. Instead, he's inviting us to be with him. To have our minds set upon him. Our hearts fixed on him. I think in Christian discipleship, this is very, very hard for us. (laughs) Because we love producing things. We love spending time on something and coming away from that time and saying, look at all that I have accomplished. But Jesus is saying here that he's not so much interested in what we accomplish, he's interested in who we are. He's interested in us being present to him. He's interested in us remaining with him. And only as we abide do we bear fruit. Only as we remain with him does fruit begin to come? Now this leads to an obvious question of what is fruit? What fruit is Jesus referring to here? And if you read eight commentaries, you'll get eight different perspectives on what the fruit is that Jesus is talking about. Uh, Jesus is not explicit. So we look to the whole of Scripture to understand what exactly he's talking about. In the most immediate context, I think that some of the fruit that Jesus is talking about is knowing that we are loved. 
the fruit of abiding with Jesus that he wants to be produced in your heart is this knowledge that you are loved. Which means you don't work for identity, security, belonging, or acceptance, but you work from it. Again, my observation of our culture is one where people are called to work for these things. That if you just work hard enough, if you can just prove yourself, then you will belong, then you will accept. If you can just go figure out who you are, then you'll fit in. These types of invitations, these types of demands, this is exhausting. But what if we weren't designed to work for our identity, security, belonging, or acceptance? But what if we were designed to receive that from God as we abide with Him and work from it? That in all that we engage in, when you walk into your junior high or high school, when you interact with your family, when you walk around on a university campus, you aren't concerned about proving yourself. You're not concerned about securing yourself. You're not concerned about finding your identity in the things that you achieve as a student, as a mother, as a father, in your workplace or your career, because you've already received that from Jesus, which empowers you to bring his light and life into those places. So this is some of the fruit, knowing we are loved. What else is the fruit? Well, there's also internal fruits of character. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruits of the spirits being, being sown in us. That as we abide with Jesus, as we spend time with him, we are changed. The fruits of the spirit, love, which looks like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Do you not want those attributes to well up out of you? Do you not want someone to look at you and say, man, you're really patient. You're really kind. You're really loving. Unfortunately, that is not the reputation that most Christians have in our society. But that is some of the fruit, that we change. Who we are changes. There's also fruits of ex external fruit of good deeds. The external fruit of good deeds. In Titus chapter 3, Paul writes to Titus that let, let people learn to devote themselves to what? To good works. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So here we have a connection between doing good works and fruitfulness that Paul makes in his letter to Titus. That as we abide, these good works will come and will emerge. I love how Leslie Newbigin says it, that it will simply be the life of Jesus being made visible in the midst of the life of the world. Isn't that beautiful? That in the way that Jesus was present in the world, some of the fruit of abiding is that we too will be present in the world in that way. And then my last thought on the fruit is that the, the fruit of, the external fruit of people receiving the gospel. That some of the fruit Jesus wants to cultivate in and through us is one that we proclaim and share the gospel with others and others come to know Jesus in a personal way. So these are some of the fruits. What do you think when you hear what these fruits are? What goes through your mind? Because when I think about this, it is in stark contrast to, again, what I think the world is inviting us to see as fruitful. And to look at the context of our, our text, again, the disciples, what's the fruit that they are looking for? They're looking for a certain type of peace and prosperity. They want the fruit of the Romans being kicked out of Israel. They want the fruit of comfort and ease. When we think about the fruit we see in our culture, we, people talk about having a great career, having the right type of house, having the right type of kids and family. Appearing a certain way to our neighbors and to our city. People talk about the fruit of just having lots of stuff. The fruit of a great retirement profile. 
Jesus isn't talking about any of these things. Which leads us to an interesting issue. I believe that as we abide, we need to surrender our idea of fruitfulness and our idea of the good life to God. This is a confronting reality. That some of the things we naturally long for, the things that we naturally desire, might not be what God believes is the best thing for us. We need to pursue the good life as God defines it. We need to pursue fruitfulness as God defines it. Because what is the fruit for? Well, in verse 8 of chapter 15, we read that by this my Father is glorified. By what? That you bear much fruit. Our fruitfulness is to the glory of God. Our fruitfulness brings pleasure to God. It invites us to live a life of worship. Now, some of us this morning, I believe, struggle to abide with Jesus because we have fruit envy. We look at the fruit of the world. We look at the abundance that our culture has to offer us. And we want that, if we're honest, more than we want the fruits that Jesus has for us. We want the fruit of culture more than we want the fruit of character. We want the fruit of abundance more than we want the fruit of people coming to know Jesus. We want the fruit of a great career and a great retirement more than we want the fruit of knowing the love of Jesus, if we're really honest. And it reminds me of my, again, my kids in settings where, you know, they're at a place where maybe they're, they're, they're selling candy and Slurpees and all sorts of things. And, and my, my kids are like, Dad, can I get a Slurpee? Can I have this candy? Can I have this thing? And I'm like, here is an apple, <laughs> right? You can have an apple. I don't do that all the time. Sometimes they get Slurpees. But my kids in that moment have envy. They're like, that kid's got a Slurpee and I got an apple. Come on, Dad. You are the worst. But is that not us with God? Where we look at the world and we see all the things that people in the world have, all the experiences they're experiencing, all the money they have, the career, the popularity, the power, the abundance, and we say, that's the stuff I want, God. You're giving me an apple? Love? But what's the reality? If my kids ate nothing but Slurpees, they'd be sick. They'd be obese. (laughs) They wouldn't feel very good. But out of love, I give my kids an apple. Did you know that God created you? Do you know that? Do you believe that? That God created you? If you believe that God created you, you have to accept the reality, the logical conclusion that your creator knows the way for you to experience abundance better than you do. You have to accept the reality that God, your creator, knows the best fruits for your life. You have to accept the reality that your creator knows the manual to your life more than you know it. You have to accept the reality That the good that God wants for you is better than the good you think is best for you. That's what it means to yield to the scriptures. To come before God and say, God, how did you make me? God, how did you wire me? God, what does it look like for me to experience abundance and life to the full? Because I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm burnt out. I'm living a hurried and troubled, troubled life. And all my friends are in the same boat. And we just think if we just do all these things that will feel better and we're doing it, but it's not working. No, it's not working. Because the fruit you're going after is the wrong fruit. 
And why is Jesus calling us to this life that's so different than the culture around us? Do you know what it is? It's love. Jesus is calling us to this life that we may experience love. And, and, and Jesus writes these words, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Which leads me to ask this question. What kind of love did the Father love the Son with? And I don't know the answer to that question. I'm sure we could delve through the scriptures to discover it. But whatever the love the Father had for the Son was, it was enough that Jesus was able to endure the cross. Whatever love the Father had for the Son, it was enough for Jesus to endure ridicule, to endure hatred, to endure pain and suffering. Why? Because he lived out of the love of the Father. And he knew that the fruit of the love of the Father was better than anything that society would have given him. Jesus could raise the dead. He could have made a pretty great career out of that. But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And he lowered himself. He submitted himself to the love of the Father and he lived out of that place. And Jesus wants you to live out of that place as well. Do you know that he loves you? And do you allow that love to speak to your sense of who you are? Your sense of worth? What kind of love did Jesus demonstrate? He gave his life for you. And in addition to that, Jesus calls us to this life that we may experience joy. Happiness, pleasure, delight. Man, I want more of that. Joy is my word for 2023. Jesus wants you to be full of joy. But here's the problem. We resist this. We want to control. We don't want to trust that our Father in heaven has everything under control. We want to take control. And we want to create the conditions in which we feel we'll best experience a deep sense of love or joy. But what if that instinct is wrong? God has love and joy available to us in ways that we can only imagine. And it looks a lot different than we think. It does not look like power. It looks like sacrificial love. It does not look like doing whatever you want whenever you want to. But submitting to the God who loves you. It does not look like discovering the best method in a 10-step plan to experience the best love, the best type of life, but it is resting in God's plan. And when we choose our way, our power, our control, our plan, we choose not to abide. When we choose our way, we choose not to abide. It's that simple. And what does Jesus say about that? Verse 6 of chapter 15, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away. Like a branch and he withers. There's no legacy. There's no lasting fruit. What's even more stings a little bit more about this is the metaphor Jesus is using. If he would have used the metaphor of being, I am the oak and you are the branches of the oak. If you cut off an oak branch, you can use that branch. You could build a nice chair out of that branch. You could make something of that branch. But he says, I'm the vine. Vine branches are good for nothing. They're good for nothing. If you're not going to abide... It's good for nothing but fire, is what Jesus says. But the hope, friends, is that the fruitfulness of the vine, the fruitfulness of our lives, these things that Jesus wants to produce in us, it's to the responsibility of the gardener. (laughs) Our text began with, My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit Friends, the Father works to create the conditions in which fruit is evidenced. 
the father cuts back and he prunes, which is a very painful reality. Now, I don't think that this this passage is not teaching that someone who has salvation in Christ can lose that salvation. I don't believe that. But I want to suggest that maybe some of you this morning feel stuck. Some of you feel like there is no fruit. Some of you are frustrated in your relationship with God. I want to suggest that maybe it's possible that, that God has cut that back in your life. You aren't producing fruit. But the reason he's cut you back The reason you're not producing fruit is so that you will emerge again from the vine, from Jesus, to be fruitful. Being cut back is an invitation for us to press into the vine, to press into Jesus. Let him do a growth and a work in our lives that fruit emerges. Others of us this morning do experience fruit. And we know what it's like to be pruned. We get that. But whether it's pruning or whether it's cutting right back, the Father does it because he loves you and he wants you to be more fruitful. Well, all of this is great, but maybe leads to the question of how do we abide? How do we abide? I think it all starts with prayer. Prayer as a practice of presence. Now, earlier in the passage, Jesus is referencing what we would call intercessory prayer, this idea of bringing requests before God that's really important. I think when it comes to the discipline of abiding, I want to suggest that there's a different type of prayer that we engage in, uh, which you could call the prayer of abiding. And it's more having a posture of prayerfulness to Jesus just in a consistent way. It's having our eyes fixed upon him throughout our day. It's, it's reading and meditating on a scripture in the morning and carrying that with us as the day unfolds. It's this idea of being present to God. The church, church tradition, uh, Brother Lawrence um, wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And it's that type of idea, that type of thrust, that we abide as we practice the presence of God. Some of us, this is really hard. I'm thankful that we have technology to help us in these regards. There's great apps and different things that you can use to help you focus in on the Lord. Um, for some of you, you might want to set a timer on your phone or your watch. That just reminds you to pray. We were actually talking about this last week in our community group. And we were talking about washing your hands after you go to the bathroom. And how it's always like this frantic, like I gotta get back to work, I gotta go do the thing, right? We talked about what if we washed our hands slowly. And just like remember Jesus (laughs) as you wash your hands. That sounds silly, but it'll probably help you to abide. In this Lenten season, we're inviting you to the practice of fasting, which Pastor Norb has already talked about. Fasting is an incredible way to abide. Because in fasting, you become hyper aware of your hunger. You become hyper aware of your longing. And every time you feel that longing, that hunger, that that longing for a feast, it's an invitation to remember you can feast on Jesus, on his presence with you. So prayer is huge. Prayer is the conduit and the vehicle in which God has given us to communicate and be present to him. So we need to use it. The second is I believe we abide through the practice of submission. We submit. We abide by a continual renewed decision. This decision will not be automatic. I think our impulse is often as the disciples face that choice. Are you going to run ahead of Jesus or are you going to fall behind him? That's the automatic. Am I going to run ahead or am I going to fall behind? But the invitation to abide 
is one where we are continually renewing our decision. We're turning our eyes to him. It's yielding our control. It's seeking strength in Jesus. A practical way to do this might be to pray through your day planner. Um, I'm a big day planner guy. I have my day planner. It's just full of all these details of what I am doing, what I have done. But to take that, to pray through it, to think about that upcoming meeting, that appointment, that thing that is happening, the drive from A to B. How do you bring all of it to Jesus and pray that you would meet him in those places? How do you think about an upcoming meeting and ask the Lord, Lord, how can I glorify you in that time? How do you think about things you need to do at work and ask the Lord, how can I meet you in my work? How can I know your presence as I go about what I'm doing? And then thirdly is, how do we abide? We order our lives around the possibility of communing with Jesus. Now, this brings us back to what we were talking about in January, the practice of having a rule of life. How is that going, you know? How is your rule of life? Um, I started January with a wonderful, fantastic running and workout plan that lasted about two weeks. So I'm very behind in that. And maybe you had a similar experience in January, thinking through all this rule of life stuff, how do I be more present to Jesus, and it just hasn't gone well. You have not failed. I always say this to my kids, get up, dust yourself off, and keep going. (laughs) Make tweaks. Think about your daily commitments. Think about all the things you have going on. Ask yourself the question, what do I need to say no to so that I can say yes to Jesus? Maybe you don't put your kids in that third or fourth activity, but you say, no, we're going to slow down. How do you cultivate space in your life to be present to Jesus? Because some of us live at such a frantic pace, it's just not possible. And unfortunately, it's a reflective, I believe, of Jesus' warning that you cannot serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other, be devoted devoted to one or love the other. Specifically, he's talking about money. But I think in our day and age, it can be the success of our children. We're more devoted to than our success in our spirituality with Jesus. We can devote it to our retirement more than we're devoted to our success in our relationship with Jesus. How do you order your life in such a way where you're creating the possibility of communing with him? Friends, Jesus is calling his disciples to a life of allegiance to him. A life of trusting him. A life where we experience the life-giving power that he has for us. And it may look different than we anticipate. But friends, it is good. It is love and it is joy. It is goodness, beauty, and righteousness. Jesus wants to work in and through us. And we must deliberately return again and again, each day and each moment of the day, to the one starting point of Jesus and his love. We must abide. And we must call out all these other ways of living as counterfeit versions of the full life that Jesus has for us. And we must devote ourselves to the one thing of being with him. I invite the worship team to join me on the platform. So my question for you this morning is, will you abide? Will you abide? Jesus calls his disciples to ground all of their doing and being in the love that he has for them. He calls us to ground all of our doing and being in the love that he has for us. 
Maybe this morning you're hearing this and you're just mindful that that hasn't been your experience. That hasn't been something you're putting effort into at all. Maybe you feel like a cut off branch. Friends, let this morning be a time of recommitment. Of turning your heart to the Father. Of saying, Jesus, I'm sorry that I didn't abide. I'm sorry that I am so tempted to either fall behind you or run ahead of you. Jesus, help me to abide in you. Just be honest with him. Give that back to him. Invite his spirit to bring you back to that place. Or maybe this morning you're not, you're not even a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here checking out faith. You're checking out the church. You're here because someone made you come. Welcome. Glad to have you. I hope this morning you're hearing this reality that the God of the universe wants you to make your home in him, to make your home with him. And Jesus says that really all we have to do is receive that, to have faith, to believe that abundance is found in him, to come to him and confess to him the many ways that we've lived our lives apart from him. It's called repentance. And then say, Jesus, I want to give you my life. I want to give you my all. I want to abide in you. I want this abundance that you have for me. I invite you this morning. Give your life to him. Ask for forgiveness for doing life on your own. Resolve to make Jesus your Lord and your Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you. We thank you for this invitation to abide in you. That, Lord, the life that we long for, the life you created us for, it's available in you. It's not up on some high shelf that we can't reach. It's not far off in some distant land where we have to put in all this effort to achieve. Rather, it's, it's right here. It's present right now in this moment. Your invitation, come, abide in me. Experience that peace and prosperity. Come to trust that your Father in heaven has everything under control. Help us to do that, Jesus, we pray. Amen.